Day after tomorrow, gentlemen, we'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. The pools, the casino, big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower. Bellagio. Riviera. The Mirage. Flamingo. Sahara. The MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesars Palace, is it? Want to gamble? They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The Strip is just the most amazing stretch of road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kicking ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. Times the Aladdin has been called the Vegas Jinx. History has documented a long line of potential suitors who, when they took their shot, missed. In a town where the house always wins, it's not only an anomaly when it doesn't, it's a cautionary tale. It isn't as simple as build it and they will come. Theme, location, timing, and in some cases luck is needed to be a successful Las Vegas resort. Edwin Lowe, a toy maker responsible for creating Yahtzee, was a Vegas visionary before his time. He believed a number of tourists would like to visit Las Vegas and not gamble, but enjoy the weather and outdoor activities available in Southern Nevada. He wanted to build a hotel featuring an understated country club atmosphere in elegant surroundings. Its name? The Tally Ho. Originally planned for a July of 1962 opening, construction delays caused the property's opening to be delayed almost a year. It would eventually open in February of 1963. At a cost of $12 million, Lowe had a 450 room and 32 villas built in an English two-door style. It had a nine-hole golf course, four swimming pools, and a giant bugle horn as the marquee, but no casino. It was an immediate failure, and within a year, Lowe sold the property to a realty firm from Kokomo, Indiana. One of the properties that company owned was called King's Crown, so they added a casino and a theater and reopened the Tally Ho on New Year's Eve 1964 as King's Crown Tally Ho with a new logo of two lions reaching up to a crown in between them. Apparently not having a casino wasn't the only problem with the property as it failed within six months and closed. They had trouble finding new ownership. One was denied a gaming license by the Nevada Gaming Commission because of suspected hidden ownership. Another bid came with a $400,000 check to be used for the down payment. However, it was discovered that the check was drawn on a non-existent British bank. The property would remain closed while the search for a new owner went on. Milton Prell was finding retirement boring. As one of the original owners of the Sahara, Prell missed the action. He considered buying the property where the El Rancho stood for $40 million, but eventually decided that $16 million for King's Cross Tally Ho was a better deal. He took control of the property on January 1st, 1966, and immediately went to work. The first thing to go was everything. Prell envisioned an Arabian Nights motif, a proven formula in Las Vegas with the Sahara, the Dunes, the Algiers, and the El Morocco, all riffing on Middle Eastern deserts. The first thing to change was the name. It would now be known as the Aladdin. In 90 days, Prell added a 500-seat theater, a 150-seat gourmet restaurant, and the state's largest casino. April 1st, 1966 was the planned reopening date. To save on construction and time, Prell kept the original 335 two-door rooms. He tasked architect Martin Stern Jr. with the project. Martin Stern Jr. made a name for himself as Dell Webb's architect. 
His first foray into the Las Vegas market was in 1953 when he designed low-rise rooms for the Sahara. That began a series of Sahara projects, including a first 14-story high-rise tower in 1959, the addition of a convention facility in 67, a 342-room high-rise addition in 77, and another 625-room addition in 1979. On Fremont Street, he designed the Mint and Lucky Strike for Del Webb. Over the years, Stern had projects at the Stardust, Sands, Landmark, Harrah's, Riviera, Thunderbird, and Flamingo. In fact, he's the guy behind the Champagne Tower at Flamingo. Stern would go on to design the two largest hotels in the world for their time, the International, best known as Hilton, but today known as Westgate, and the original MGM Grand, known today as Bally's. Martin Stern Jr. is credited as the man who raised the Vegas skyline. Prell knew he needed a new sign to properly attract people to the property. Signs design in the mid-60s would be known as the golden age of signage in Vegas. Prell pitted the top three sign makers of the time against each other to propose ideas for Aladdin's marquee. Eventually, the job was awarded to Yesco's Jack Larson. The story on this one goes, Milton Prell wasn't thrilled by the Yesco sign proposal. However, there was a small thumbnail doodle done by Jack Larson's son that caught the eye of Milton. He liked how whimsical it was, looking like something straight out of a Walt Disney cartoon. So Jack Sr. decided to develop the design further, and what he came up with was a string of hundreds of golden cylinders gradually curled up to a revolving three-sided whiteboard, holding a fountain spraying gold and floating a light bulb-covered oil lamp. Three giant golden pylons scrolling up like Turkish slippers supported the structure. Milton was so thrilled by it, he commissioned Yesco to turn the casino's pork ashore into a second neon sign. It jagged around individual neon letters spelling Aladdin, written in a pop culture interpretation of an eastern brush point. Of the $3 million Milton Prell put into rebranding, $750,000 went to the 15-story sign alone. The Aladdin opened April 1, 1966. This date was selected intentionally because it was the beginning of a new quarter at Milton Prell's company. It had nothing to do with April Fool's Day. The opening of the Aladdin signaled the end of an eight-year building drought for Las Vegas. Lines to get into the place were reported to stretch from Aladdin down to the sands. One thing that set the Aladdin apart from other properties was the show policy. The showroom, named in theme as the Baghdad Theater, featured three completely different shows nightly from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. The difference was there was no cover charge or drink minimum like every other showroom on the strip had. The Aladdin had an Olympic-sized pool surrounded by 30 apartment-sized villas left over from the tally-ho days. The golf course was designed as the most challenging and finest par 3 golf course west of the Mississippi. Another innovation Aladdin introduced to the market was an escalator that moved patrons from the parking area to the casino. Remember, this was 1966, so that was futuristic. Finally, the Aladdin was a hit from the day it opened. A little more than a year later, the Aladdin would play host to one of the biggest events of the decade, Elvis Presley's marriage to Priscilla. The Aladdin was selected because Colonel Tom Parker, Elvis' manager, was friends with Milton Prell. Even though Elvis would never perform at a Prell property, whenever he visited, he always stayed with him. According to Prell's assistant, Colonel Parker said to spare no expense on the wedding. The nuptials would be exchanged in Prell's private suite. Prell had grand plans for the Aladdin, including a 36-story hotel tower that would contain 700 new rooms and VIP suites. He also wanted to have a 750-seat convention area that would be located on the top floor. However, Milton wasn't able to get funding for his expansion. In 1968, 
Prell suffered a stroke, which forced him into retirement again. The hotel was put up for sale, and Parvin Dorman, a Los Angeles-based internal furnishings company, purchased it for 70,000 shares of Parvin Dorman stock, exchanged for all outstanding Aladdin stock. The estimated value of the purchase was $10 million. Al Parvin had supplied carpeting to Las Vegas resorts as well as done some interior work before he started buying casinos. Parvin Dorman ownership was short-lived, and in December of 1971, they sold the Aladdin to a group of investors that included Sam Diamond, Peter Webb, and Charles Goldfarb for $5 million. Goldfarb was a Detroit bail bondsman. As one would expect from a bail bondsman, the Gaming Commission voiced concern over the number of unsavory characters Goldfarb would be involved with at certain times over the years. The commission made sure to clarify that there was no inference that Goldfarb was a hoodlum, but that it was the commission's responsibility to keep any possible taint of impropriety out of Nevada gaming. New ownership took over January 1st, 1972. They quickly introduced double odds on craps and was the first to introduce bingo on the strip. They also invested $60 million in refurbishment, including a 19-story high-rise and a new 7,500-seat theater known as the Aladdin Theater for the Performing Arts Center. The tower was actually only 19 stories tall, but it was publicized as having 29 floors. They did this by starting numbering floors at 11 instead of 1. The theater would take over the space formerly home to the golf course. It finally gave contemporary acts a place to play in Las Vegas. Acts like the Beatles, Iron Butterfly, and Led Zeppelin had to perform at the convention center, and it didn't have very good acoustics. In addition, Aladdin booked Broadway shows in the theater, a shopping concourse connected the theater with the rest of the hotel. Yesco was brought in to reimagine the Porcashore and Marquee. They designed a new $250,000 Porcashore that contained 9,230 light bulbs. And a new 140-foot-tall Marquee was built with little neon, a huge attraction board, and little Arab-esque theming for $300,000. The problem with the Performing Arts Center is that it was built with loans from the Teamsters Union, and at this time, Anything involving the Teamsters in Vegas was being scrutinized. Goldfarb and Webb were both convicted of conspiring to allow hidden ownership in the Aladdin. Once the verdict was in, the NGC ordered the hotel closed on August 6, 1979. U.S. District Court Judge Harry Claiborne ordered the hotel to reopen several hours later. Webb was indicted on kickback charges amounting to upwards of $1 million during the expansion of the hotel and the building of the Performing Arts Center. Once again... The NGC ordered the Aladdin closed, but this time it stuck. 2,000 casino and hotel employees lost their jobs. The property attracted a series of potential buyers, including Wayne Newton and Johnny Carson. Newton partnered with friend and former president of the Riviera, Ed Torres. The bidding got ugly when Wayne Newton was accused of being tied to the mob. Ultimately, Newton and Torres prevailed and bought the hotel for $85 million. Problem was, even though they were friends... Newton and Torres butted heads on many occasions. Newton opposed the entertainment policy shift from big name acts to reviews. Eventually, Torres got tired of arguing and bought out Newton in 1982. But Newton was right, and the property continued to struggle under Torres. Within a year, he tried selling the property back to Newton. In February of 1984, the Teamsters called in their loan, and Torres didn't have the money. The resort was $3.5 million in debt, and Newton didn't have the financing to buy the property back. So Torres filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. The hotel would remain open while Torres sorted out financing. While that was happening, charges of mob infiltration and skimming were discovered. Once again, 
the property was closed. Hope came from Japanese businessman Genji Yasuda when he bought the property for $54 million in 1987. Yasuda began a $20 million year-long remodel of the hotel. The casino remained closed while the Gaming Commission conducted its background checks on Yasuda. He was eventually granted a two-year conditional license, making him the first international owner of a Las Vegas hotel. But Yasuda didn't know how to run a hotel casino, and he wouldn't let the people he hired do what needed to be done without second-guessing every decision. One rumor surfaced that Yasuda borrowed upwards of $6 million in cash from Japanese organized crime figures. When the NGC heard about it, they called Yasuda in for a review. When he wouldn't tell commissioners where the money came from, they immediately pulled his gaming license, putting the property once again back into bankruptcy court. In 1991, New Jersey-based Bell Atlantic Tricon purchased the Aladdin out of bankruptcy. That same year, they put the property up for sale. While the search was on, in 1992, Joe Burt, a casino executive, took out a 12-year lease on the Aladdin and started a $15 million renovation to the place. While hotel occupancy was high, the problem became keeping people on property with the allure of the New Vegas down the street in the Mirage and Treasure Island. Comparatively, the Aladdin had become dated. The only thing making money was the Performing Arts Center. Still, things were looking like they were turning around when tragedy struck once again, and Joe Burt died in a motorcycle accident in 1993. In January of 94, it was reported that Donald Trump was interested in the property for $51 million, but ownership at the time didn't want to let the property go for less than 60. Later that year, Jack Sommer and his family trust, Sigmund Sommer, bought the Aladdin for $80 million through their company Aladdin Gaming LLC. Despite initial promises to the contrary, in 1997, it was announced that the Aladdin would be demolished to make way for a new $1.2 billion Aladdin. Early details included 2,600 rooms, a casino facing the Strip, and a 462,000 square foot shopping mall that would be called the Desert Passage. Together, they would employ 7,000 people. Sommer promised to keep the Arabian motif and name. A $250 million joint venture was announced with Planet Hollywood to create a music-themed resort. The new Aladdin would be three times as big as the previous and be situated on 35 acres. The Aladdin closed November 25, 1997. It was imploded on April 27, 1998. An estimated 20,000 people watched the implosion live. 800 people paid $250 per seat to watch the implosion from a tent at the southeast corner of the Aladdin site. Proceeds were donated to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. As they waited, bags holding ponchos, goggles, and face masks were passed out to protect the crowd from dust. Controlled demolition was responsible for the implosion. CDI was responsible for multiple other buildings' destructions, including the Seattle Kingdom, the Dunes, and the Hacienda. They were also one of the companies responsible for the cleanup after the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. According to CDI company president, the tower used a poor concrete block design. It was referred to as a poor man's high-rise and extremely susceptible to collapse. This created a different challenge for the project. While it would be easy to implode, Getting the building to come down in the right direction would be a challenge. Because of this, the amount of explosives needed was decreased from 370 pounds to 232 pounds. The marquee sign read, Out of the dust, Aladdin rises anew. See you in 2000. Not part of the implosion was the theater for performing arts. It would be incorporated into the new Aladdin. The new Aladdin opened August of 2000. 
The two resort towers that extended from the building towards Las Vegas Boulevard are designed to resemble the original Aladdin Tower. However, the new property encountered problems from the beginning. Two weeks after 9-11 happened, the resort filed for bankruptcy. The way New York, New York became the place where people were drawn to pay tribute, some looked at the Aladdin's Middle Eastern theme as a tribute to Al-Qaeda, a Bin Laden-themed resort. In 2003, with a bid of $637 million, Robert Earl, the head of the Planet Hollywood restaurant chain, purchased the Aladdin and rebranded it Planet Hollywood. While this move was largely considered a good thing, some point to the fact that the Planet Hollywood restaurant had sought bankruptcy protection twice itself. Eventually, the NGC approved new ownership, and the Aladdin was rebranded Planet Hollywood in 2007. The property initially showed promising signs of success, then the Great Recession hit. Once again, the property was in dire straits and couldn't manage its debt load. So in September of 2009, Harrah's Entertainment bought Planet Hollywood for $860 million. And that's where we stand today. The property is finally a success as a part of Caesars Entertainment portfolio. The theater of performing arts is still used today by the artists signed for short-term residencies at the property. Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, Christina Aguilera, Def Leppard, Jennifer Lopez, Gwen Stefani, and many more have called it home during their residencies in the city. Planet Hollywood seems to have finally found its footing. Robert Earl must be credited with the new concept and for setting the property up for success. He could have just as easily tried to make Planet Hollywood in the restaurant's image. 9-11 and the Great Recession weren't anyone in Vegas' fault, but it just goes to show that anything can happen in a casino. That's kind of what we love about Las Vegas. If winning wasn't so cool, we wouldn't put up with all the losing required. <laughs>